All right, today the message is going to be entitled, Elisha, Holy Deception with God's Help, Should Christians Tell Lies, Part 4. Lord God, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for this time, as Brother James said earlier, to be gathered together in your house. Lord, please be with us now, God. Be with the preaching, be with the hearing, God, and just be have your spirit be with our spirit, God. Help us to glorify you in all that we do, but especially right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The passage, the main passage today will be 2 Kings 6. And we'll start with verse 17. And so in 2 Kings 6, in verse 17, it says, and Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, this is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. So let's review what we learned about lying previously. The Bible does not just condemn telling a falsehood. It condemns guile. All forms of lying, dissimulation, deceit, equivocation, pretending you don't understand a question or other shuffling, saying you barely remember something when you remember it more than you let on, dealing in ambiguities to confuse or deceive, playing on multiple meanings of words, concealing by saying things that reasonably would make someone believe something that is not true. These are all condemned. Trying to get around the Bible's condemnation of guile by pretending we did not technically lie is a fool's game, one from which we will not escape if we engage in it. Proverbs 19.5 says, A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. The only way we escape, if we did this, is if we confess, repent, and forsake this sin. In 1 John 1.9 it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We saw that the Bible never commends lying, because the Bible uses that word like the word murder. It has a built-in connotation of wrongdoing. We showed comprehensive dictionaries like Oxford Agreed, and that the premier Christian-based English dictionary, Webster's 1828, also agreed. We did not look at, sources of, at scores of dictionaries and definitions to cherry-pick the meaning we wanted, and we showed how concepts like that of calling someone a liar being fighting words bore out this definition while phrases like speaking a falsehood did not arouse quite such ire. We noted that Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Ghost when they lied to the apostles, and they were struck dead. We noted that the precise manner of Ananias' deception was not mentioned, because it did not matter how he deceived them or what words he used, whether technically true in some rationalized way or not. As it says in Acts 5, But a certain man named Ananias... With Sapphira, his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it and 
brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Ananias said, but Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie, to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. Lying involves deceit that is not biblically justified. Much like murder is killing that is not biblically justified. We know that deceit is justified at times because God himself engages in it. Ezekiel 14.9 says, And if the prophet be deceived when he hath spoken the thing, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand upon him and will destroy him from the midst of my people. We also studied several commandments of God in addition to killing that had exceptions. These included stealing, which is taking something that doesn't belong to you, which is allowable in a just war. Joshua 11:14 says, And all the spoil of these cities and the cattle the children of Israel took for a prey unto themselves. But every man they smote with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, neither left any to breathe. Another exception, including bowing down to idols in certain special circumstances. 2 Kings 5, 18-19 says, In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he said unto him, Go in peace. We noted that stories like the above, were given for us to learn. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And our Lord showed us that we can indeed get our doctrine about exceptions from examples alone, even when not supported with direct, specific commandments on the matter. As Matthew 12 says, at that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was hungered, and, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? We see from this that the Lord used the illustration of David picking corn on the Sabbath and the fact that the priests themselves worked to reason out a point about an exception that was not explicitly mentioned in the law. We learn that the exceptions that allow deception are similar to the exceptions that allow killing. We have seen that Rahab was justified in her deceit, as were the Hebrew midwives, we have shown that the view that Rahab and the midwives were liars is a righteous overmuch view, a view that by being overwise is not righteous or wise at all, but leads to destruction. As Ecclesiastes says, be not righteous overmuch, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? The view is like taking the commandment to resist not evil or to turn the other cheek, to forbid killing in self-defense. Or it is like the fact that God hates putting away means it is unlawful to divorce, even in cases of adultery. 
Refusing to defend oneself or one's family because of a misunderstanding of the right to self-defense laid out in the Bible can lead to unnecessary death if an evil man breaks into the home looking to hurt someone and the man is not violently repelled as he rightfully should be. Believing there is no allowable for divorce for adultery can increase any temptation one has to to commit adultery and ironically cause the innocent spouse to divorce regardless of professed belief as the pain of betrayal sets in. Likewise, we learn that the belief that telling falsehoods to deceive is always wrong will tempt one to deceive himself and lie because he has to, res- he has to rest the plain scriptures to his destruction and come up with reasons how deception is allowable as long as there is imagined to be technically no falsehood coming out of his mouth. Instead of allowing the reasonable exceptions given in cases like Rahab and the Hebrew midwives, Proponents of this view need to insist on them being liars. And they also insist that Elisha, although just as deceptive, did not lie. Not because he was justified in his deception against enemy soldiers like Rahab, but because he spoke carefully and chose words that were supposedly not really lies. Before we look at the Elisha passage in detail, let's briefly review Rahab and the Hebrew midwives. Joshua 2 starting in verse 1, says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out to Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them, and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass, about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. So she told them that they left through the gate. But that was false, and she had really hidden them on her roof. So then when we jump down a little bit, it says, Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you and hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned and afterward you may go your way. So instead of sending them the way of the gate where the pursuers went, she sent them out her window in the wall to the mountain, which was the other way to hide. Joshua and his army then came and then they destroy the city. Rahab makes the so-called faith hall of fame in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 talks about how men and women drew on their faith to accomplish great works and obtain a better resurrection. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. What does it mean that she received the spies with peace? How would she have not received them with peace? Well, for one, she could have refused them entry to her house. Absent an intervention by the Lord, that would have led to the death of the spies. 
And it would have led to the death of Rahab, as Joshua would not have stopped his conquest if he lost a couple of soldiers. But she did receive them. How was it with peace? She could have let them in her house, put them to sleep if she could, and killed them like Jael did. Remember the heroic homemaker Jael and how she killed Sisera in her tent after feeding him a meal? Ladies, don't ever forget how much of a blessing it is and how important it is being in the home and able to feed and entertain guests, how important that is. It won't always have this visible of an impact, but our Lord sees the service just the same, and it is just as important to him. As it says in Judges 4, 21, Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. So if Rahab did that to the spies, that would not have been receiving them in peace. And she would not have gotten a noble song written about her, since she would have been on the side of evil instead of on the Lord's side. But let's read that portion of the song again. I always find it amazing to consider. In Judges 5, part of this song that was sang by um, Deborah and Barak after they won their victory, it says, Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. He asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer, and with the hammer she smote Sisera. She smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. At her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay down. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. So now check out these verses in Luke 11. When a strong man armed heapeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come unto him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divided his spoils. So this strong man has some goods. They were said to be in peace as long as he held them safely. I think the scripture is clarifying in regards to Rahab. Rahab didn't just receive the spies into her house. That wasn't enough according to Hebrews 11. She needed to receive them with peace. They, needed, they had to be received and then remain safely in her house. No one stronger could come and take them. The men the king of Jericho sent were surely stronger, at least physically, than Rahab. Now look at what the infallible narrator of the book of Joshua, which is the Holy Ghost, then said of Rahab. In Joshua 6, verse 25, it says, and Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive and her father's household and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So now we are gaining more details about what Rahab did. We now know that part of how she received them with peace, that is keeping them safe from their enemies, was that she hid them. She had very little time to hide them. Notice again what it says in, our, in Joshua 2, in verse 3. It says, And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to, me, to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them, and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. She quickly hid them by taking a mere moment and directing them to the flax, as she had to immediately respond to the king's men so as not to arouse suspicion. We see how hasty it was as they didn't even finish lying down to hide. 
In Joshua 2, verses 6 through 8, it says, But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the flax of stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof. So in that brief moment, she hid the spies. But the king's men were at the door. How was she going to keep her righteous spies hidden in peace? She could have refused to answer the door. It would have broken it down. She could have tried to let them out the window. They would have been caught. She could have opened the door and thought this is a time for silence and said nothing. They would have searched thoroughly and found the spies. In any of these cases, she would have failed at hiding them. She could have let them in and tried to kill them when their backs were turned. In the unlikely event that succeeded, more men would have arrived there shortly and overtaken the men of God. So what did she do? She told a falsehood in time of war to men she could have justifiably killed. We already know from Ezekiel 14.9 that the Lord deceives. Deception is not always wrong. There is no reason to think it is unless we bring our biases to the word of God. Look now at James. This will seal it. James 2 verse 25 said this about Rahab. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? We can now put all of the information we have on Rahab regarding this matter together. What was she commended for? She received the spies with peace. Necessarily, she did that by keeping them safe. She hid them. And what else did she do? She sent them out on their way? No, she sent them out another way. Every word of God is pure. If you remember one point to prove that Rahab was commended in part for the falsehood she told, it is that one word, another. She sent them out another way. There would not have been another way to send the spies unless she first sent out the, pursuer, the pursuers the initial false way. As Joshua 2 says, and the, women took the two, and the woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. Rahab falsely told the men to go the way of the gate. She then sent the spies out through her window to the mountain. The falsehood was integral to her sending them out another way for which James specifically tells us she was justified. There is simply no way around this. They likely sang songs about Rahab, just like the people of God many years later did for Jael. Rahab then went on to marry Salmon and had a child named Boaz, a mighty man of wealth, who then married Ruth and eventually produced King David. In Matthew 1, it says, And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Of course, then the Lord Jesus Christ himself descended from that lineage. If that wasn't amazing enough, Rahab was justified by faith and works to make it into the promised land. And not only back then with her new husband, but she also will appear in the millennial kingdom where she will obtain a better resurrection. Hebrews 11.35 says women received their dead raised to life again and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. When you see that verse, it really makes the objections to this view of Rahab seem 
rather silly. Matthew Henry, an old commentator, seems like he almost is ready to believe that Rahab did nothing wrong in her falsehood, but can't quite make it there. He wrote about the, this passage, It is plain that she deceived the officers that examined her with an untruth, that she knew not whence the men were, that they had gone out, that she knew not whither they had gone. What shall we say to this? If she had either told the truth or been silent, she would have betrayed the spies, and this would certainly have been a great sin. And it does not appear that she had any other way of concealing them than by this ironical direction to the officers to pursue them another way which if they would suffer themselves to be deceived by, let them be deceived. None are bound to accuse themselves or their friends of that which, though inquired after as a crime, they know to be a virtue. This case was altogether extraordinary and therefore cannot be drawn into a precedent. And that may be justified here, which would be by no means lawful in a common case. Rahab knew by what was already done on the other side, Jordan, that no mercy was to be shown to the Canaanites. And thence inferred that, if mercy was not owing them, truth was not. Those that might be destroyed might be deceived. So far, so good. This falsehood is something that should be very rare, but there was no choice. But then he goes on with this. Yet divines generally conceive that it was a sin, which, however admitted of this extenuation, that being a Canaanite, she was not better taught the evil of lying. But God accepted her faith and pardoned her infirmity. However it was in this case, we are sure it is our duty to speak every man the truth to his neighbor, to dread and detest lying and never to do evil, that evil, that good may come of it. Romans 3.8. But God accepts what is sincerely and honestly intended, though there be mixture of frailty and folly in it, and it is not extreme to mark what we do amiss. So lying is a horrible evil, though. You can't just wink at it because she was a Canaanite, never taught any better. Lying's a moral sin. It's an abomination, the Bible says, that even the heathen know is wrong. It's like sodomy or murder. God will punish any nation or individual for this sin, as we all have consciences that tell us that lying is wrong. And where do we have God accepting abominations because they are done in sincerity? No, God is not winking at a sin. It is simply not sin to deceive in this case. He had it right when he said those that might be destroyed might be deceived. But then he quotes Romans 3. Let's look at that. Romans 3, verses 1 through 8 says, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our righteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. So let's stop here. Paul is arguing here that if the Jews don't believe, some will say, doesn't that mean that God failed them somehow? He then is saying that no one that is just He's then saying that no one, he is then is saying that no, that is just further proof that God is true as unrighteousness of man shows how righteous God is. He then asks hypothetically, taking the other side in his argument, does that mean God is unrighteous for taking vengeance since the unrighteous behavior is commending God's righteousness? Here is then the answer as we continue reading in verse six, 
God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? Now in the next verse, he'll ask the hypothetical question again in a different way. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Again, he's saying, why, if God's truth is shown forth the more by my lying, why is it wrong for me to lie in such a way? The next verse then answers it by speaking for itself. And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. This is saying... If the point of that question he asked a couple ways was valid, if doing bad things glorifies God in the end anyways, why don't we just do these evil actions so that good comes? He seems to not answer this because when you read it that way, it's kind of self-refuting. In fact, he says that some slanderously accused Paul of teaching that very thing, that we should do evil, that good may come. The way Matthew, Henry, and others use this verse is to suggest that lying wrong lying is wrong, and that if we promote lying to do something right, like saving the spies' lives in this case, that would mean we are violating 3.8 and teaching that we should do evil, that is lying, so that good may come, that is the spies' deliverance. The problem with this argument is simple. Deceiving by telling a falsehood is not always wrong. It is not doing evil that good may come. If Rahab killed the, Jer killed the Jericho king's men, who are looking for the spies, we wouldn't say she did evil, that good may come. It is the same in this actual case. Rahab did nothing wrong when she told the falsehood to the pursuers. She did not do evil. So it is not a question of the emergency situation allowed for the evil, or the outcome was less evil by telling them a falsehood, or that evil was done so that good may come. No, she simply did no evil at all in telling her falsehood to those men. It is interesting when we read that verse in Romans 3 again, Romans 3, 8, and not rather, as we be slanderously reported and as, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. When someone accuses us that we are suggesting we should do evil that good may come, when we teach of a justified deception, they're slandering us just like they did Paul. That's not what we teach. It's not what the Bible teaches. And to use that argument just betrays their ignorance of the doctrine. There's one more thing Matthew Henry says about Rahab. Some suggest that what she said might possibly tr be true of some other men. So she's saying basically that there, maybe there was two other men that also went there that same day, and she actually was just talking about them and not about the men that um, actually showed up. So it's hard to conceive of a more ridiculous explanation than this. But this is what some people are left with when they refuse to understand that deception is sometimes allowed. God does it to people himself, and it is allowed in specified cases for his servants to do it also. So again, that idea, in addition to the spies, there happened to be some other men who visited Rahab that day. So think about that when you're reading these verses here, if that's what she's talking about. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house. For they become to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate when it was dark that the men went out whither the men went. I wot not pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. So when Rahab said there came men unto me, etc., she was really talking about some other men who actually did leave that way and she knew nothing about them and they really did leave when the gate was shut. Aside from the fact that if this were true, why weren't the men caught since they would not have been fleeing? 
This still solves nothing. She knew good and well who they were talking about. To answer and refer to someone else would have been just as dishonest as telling an outright falsehood about the spies. Explanations like these are the real danger. <clears throat> as they cause people to think these sorts of explanations are truthful when they are really not any different in essence from a downright falsehood. This will make a good segue into the story of Elisha, but before we go there, I'll just make one more mention of the Hebrew midwives. Exodus 1, again, with the Hebrew midwives section there in verse 15 says, And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shiphrah, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in, and in unto them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. Notice again that the midwives were not telling the truth when they said the babies are delivered before they got there. If this were true, and God would have been making all the Hebrew women so lively that the babies be delivered before they got there, then they would not have been doing anything to save the men children. But the inspired narrator said the midwives did not obey the king and did save the babies. That means the midwives were either purposely holding back and not showing up on time, or they simply did not kill the babies even when they were there for the delivery. Either way, what they said was deceitful and would be rightfully called a lie in another context. But it was not an unrighteous deceit, and so was not a lie. One verse proves it above all others. In verse 20, it said, Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. The one word in that verse is therefore. Immediately after the narrator records the midwives' falsehood, he then says, Therefore, God dealt well with them. It was because they told a falsehood that they were rewarded. The falsehood was not to save their own life, but to ensure the babies would be saved a little longer. The brave actions of these midwives directly caused Moses to be saved, who ultimately delivered Israel from this horrible bondage. Had they not engaged in this deception, Moses would have been killed by someone else. Pharaoh would have gotten to do that murderous job. Instead, Moses was allowed to be born and placed in the river. So let's look at the story of Elisha and the blinded soldiers. So in 2 Kings 6, starting in verse 8, Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servant, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come, up, come down. So that man of God is Elisha. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there, not once nor twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, 
the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. So what was happening here was Elisha, by the power of God, supernaturally was aware of the Syrian king's troop movements, and he would warn the king of Israel. So we pick it up in verse 13, and he said, Go and spy where he is, that is Elisha, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. So the king of Syria found out where Elisha was and surrounded the city he was in with an army to capture him. So continuing on, when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said, uh, said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So we see that Elisha's servant got up and then told his master how alarmed he was at them being surrounded. Elisha then says, don't worry, and prays that God opens his eyes. He then sees an angelic host of fiery horses and chariots surrounding them, thereby providing protection from this army that only they could see. So picking it up again in verse 18. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. And it came to pass, when they were coming to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha, when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. So Elisha smote this army with blindness, brought them to Samaria where they were surrounded, but then had them fed and released. But let's look at this now in more detail. First, Elisha prays to God to smite them with blindness. What kind of blindness was this? In Acts 13, we read about a wicked sorcerer that was struck blind by Paul. It says in Acts 13, but Elimas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. So he told him he had not seen the sun, and the fellow obviously could not see at all, as he did what was normal in that situation, look for someone to lead him about. Before this, Paul himself had been on the receiving end of some blinding from the Lord. In Acts 9 it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest 
and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues. And if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, but when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. So he did the same thing. He needed to be led by the hand as he was blind. This also once happened to a bunch of Sodomites when they were trying to get Lot. In Genesis 19, in verse 9, it says, And they said, Stand back. And they said again, This one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we, now will we deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut to the door. And they smote the men, that's the angels, that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. These men obviously were also literally blind, but in their strange burning lust for that which is unseemly, they didn't give it any thought. They just groped in their darkness trying to get to Lot. But what about the soldiers coming after Elisha? What kind of blindness did they have? Let's read again in 2 Kings 6, starting in verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may, be, may see. This is talking about his servant. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, this is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. And it came to pass when they were coming to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they are in the midst of Samaria. It appears God smote them with a spiritual blindness, not a complete literal blindness. In the context, Elisha's servant was already able to see before his eyes were opened. He just didn't see the situation for what it really was. When Elisha then opens the eyes of the soldiers after blinding them, it seems to be a similar idea. Would soldiers who, struck, who were struck blind like Paul or the sorcerer have been worried about finding Elisha? Or would they have been interested in beating a hasty retreat back to the safety of their own land instead of standing around completely blind in an adversary's country? They were not lust-filled brutes like the Sodomites. No, these, men, these men's blindness was akin to the blindness mentioned in the previous verse of Elisha's servant. God took away the blindness from his servant's eyes and placed a spiritual blindness on the soldier's eyes so they could not recognize Elisha and not recognize they were being brought into a trap. But even if one insisted that the blindness must be a literal physical blindness, just like happened to those other men, there would still have to be a spiritual aspect, a blindness of their mind. Because what troop of soldiers on a mission to capture, to capture an enemy leader would proceed to follow some random person they could not even see 
and then walk many miles to the middle of Samaria. How could they even take anyone prisoner if they themselves were all entirely without sight, blind as bats? It would take a spiritual deception to even be thinking like that when one is blind. But I don't think we have to imagine that scenario. The entire company of soldiers, I don't think, were holding hands as they walked in darkness being led by Elisha. No, it was a spiritual blindness, again, like what was just described about Elisha's servant. This is important because it shows that God himself participated in this deception with Elisha. And this was a deception of the same nature as Rahab and the midwives. After they were spiritually blinded, look at the next verse, verse 19. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. Here's again what Matthew Henry says about this verse in 2 Kings 6. When they were thus bewildered and confounded, he led them to Samaria, promising that he would show them the man whom they sought, and he did so. He did not lie to them when he told them this is not the way, nor is this the city where Elisha is, for he had now come out of the city, and if they would see him, they must go to another city to which he would direct them. Those that fight against God and his prophets deceive themselves and are justly given up to delusions. So this might sound like a nice homily, but it's really nonsense in this context. The soldiers didn't deceive themselves. Elisha called blindness down upon them, and Elisha deceived them. It didn't say Elisha came out of the city. It says the soldiers surrounded the city. Then the soldiers came down to Elisha. When they reached Elisha, he smote them with blindness. He then made an intentional false statement to deceive them. They were in the city Elisha was in, and they had found him. It was the way. This was not some kind of holy silence, an allowable concealment, merely because a higher authority decreed it was necessary. It was a spoken untruth, allowable because it was a war. They were enemy soldiers. Elisha could have called down fire from heaven and burned them to a crisp just like his mentor Elijah had done before to some other soldiers with God's help a little earlier in this very book. In 2 Kings 1, verse 9 to 10, it says, Then the king, the different king, sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of a hill, and he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. If, Eli, if, Eli, if Elisha could kill them lawfully, which he could if Elijah was able to, in the same context, he could deceive them lawfully. And this is clear from the verse itself. But first, let's look at this passage again and notice the conjunctions. I'm just going to read parts of all these verses here. Notice this. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, in verse 9. And the king of Israel sent to the place. And he called his servants and said unto them, Will you not show me that which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. And he said, Go and spy where he is. And it was told him, Behold, he's in Dothan. And they came by night, encompassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth. And his servant said unto him, Alas, master. And he answered, Fear not. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord. And Elisha said unto him, This is not the way. And it came to pass, when they were coming to Samaria, Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men. And the Lord opened their eyes. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? 
And he answered, thou shalt not smite them. And he prepared great provision for them. Finally, the connecting word changes. It says, so the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. And, and, and. It kept saying and. Why is that important? And shows that things are just proceeding chronologically as they are described. You know the one place where it doesn't say and in our passage, but instead uses a different conjunction? In the second half of our verse in 19. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. And he led them to Samaria. Nope, it doesn't say that. This is how the purveyors of false doctrine would have you read this. They would have you believe he was simply telling them truthfully, this is not the way or the city, and then led them to the truthful place, to their chagrin. No, it says, but he led them to Samaria. And Elisha said unto them, this is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. In the midst of all those ands that were in the entire passage, why did God suddenly use the word but in this one place? It is because Elisha was deceiving him. He led them to a different place than, he was expect than they were expecting to go. He was tricking them. If it wasn't enemy soldiers or otherwise justifiable, the verse could have said he lied to him. And we could look at a very similar sounding passage, especially the last verse in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings 13 and verse 11, it says, Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king, then they told also to their father, and their father sent unto him, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that came as from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me, and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, Thou shalt eat no bread nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. And he said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. Notice the similar usage of the word but. Again, Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom ye seek. But he led them to Samaria. This clearly indicates that Elisha was not being truthful. Another thing that is interesting about this verse is that all the false Bibles, at least all the ones from Westcott and Hort, actually read, and he led them to Samaria, instead of, but he led them to Samaria. It is not surprising that lying Bibles would support a lying doctrine about lying. So notice, if there is one word that really clinches that Elisha was not being truthful, it would be the word but. But he led them to Samaria. Please also note that God supported Elisha's deception. It would not have worked without God blinding the minds of the Syrian army. God's support clearly indicates that the deception was justified. There is no question that in some cases God causes and even allows his saints to practice deception, and deception that would be called lying in other contexts. If this was not wartime and these were not enemy soldiers, Elisha would have been engaged in lying. Not understanding this is so dangerous. Imagine speaking to people in such a way where you can deceive people into believing almost anything as long as you can make the words you say seem to be true in your own self-serving context. These soldiers would have thought that Elisha was telling them 
that he would take them to the man they sought so they could capture him and bring him back to Syria. But he didn't do that. He instead led them into a trap so they would be kidnapped. He did the opposite of what he thought, what they thought he was telling them. He took advantage of their blinded state and said words to get them to believe something that was the opposite of what they thought he meant and the opposite of their intentions. When we're communicating with people, we need to communicate in a way that we both, both of us clearly understand what is meant by the words we're using. Anything less than this is not being honest. It's not honorable. It's guile. It's not, it's not dishonorable, but rather allowable in war in certain cases. But not because one with a strong imagination can make the words fit a self-serving narrative in which they can be seen to be true in some imagined technical sense, which conveniently will be judged only from the point of view of the man engaged in the deception. If you are a pastor or other leader with this doctrine, you'll be tempted to engage in this with your own flock, rationalizing all sorts of things that your brothers and sisters in Christ in your sole judgment, don't have a right to know as you beguile them into thinking all sorts of things that are not true. We can make anything true once we go down this road. It's a damnable heresy, a doctrine of devils. We must not go down that road, but rather speak and stand up for the truth. Ephesians 4 says, in verse 24 and 25, And that she put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying... Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we are members one of another, God. Help us to put away lying, God, not to deal with one another as if we are enemy soldiers, able to be killed on the battlefield, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, God, help us to be like Nathaniel, of whom you said he was without guile, God. Help all of us be without guile in our dealings. God, forgive us where we have lied. Forgive us where we have equivocated, prevaricated, or in any ways unrighteously deceived others. God, help us to just, again, be straightforward in our dealings, be upright. God, to be as you were when you walked this earth, Lord Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.